Hi, I'm Dr. Connie Schulte, and you are listening to the Animal Academy Podcast. Welcome to the Animal Academy Podcast. I'm Allison White, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in the human-animal connection. This podcast will showcase professionals who share their areas of expertise in an ongoing series of interviews, and you are there. Their input, stories, and knowledge will help us all understand that we are the ones that actually end up learning from the animals. This is the Animal Academy Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Animal Academy Podcast. The focus of this podcast has been on the many ways that animals make our lives whole and how they add many benefits to our quality of life. But what if our beloved pet has challenges and we find ourselves faced with difficult choices and decisions regarding their care? Well, this may also impact our own quality of life. I'm excited to have a discussion with Kristen Buller, licensed clinical social worker with a certification in veterinary social work. Hi, Kristen. Nice to speak with you tonight. Hi, Allison. And also, we'll be speaking with Dr. Kelly Ballantyne, a board-certified veterinary behaviorist, who will discuss the research project called Living with and Loving a Pet with Behavioral Problems, Pet Owners' Experiences. Kelly, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for having me, Allison, having both of us. Well, Kristen and Kelly, welcome to this episode. I have been looking forward to this all day, actually. Actually, I've been looking forward to it since you said that you would you would come on the podcast with me because it's a really, really important topic, and I think the listeners will learn a lot. Would each one of you, it doesn't matter which order you go in, would you mind telling the audience a little bit about your background and why this topic's important to you? So I kind of came to this topic personally with our first dog that we had. His name was Buddy, and we had actually been living in Cambodia for several years and got Buddy there. Um, And when we came back to the U.S., we realized he had some special needs. And so through kind of going through some dog training courses and realizing he had some more severe behavior problems, actually met Kelly as someone we went to for help as her in her veterinary behaviorist role. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was actually in meeting her and working with her and our dog, Buddy, that she and I connected and started talking about maybe this would be an area we could do some research in. Oh, terrific. I didn't know that about you, Krista. That's an awesome story. And Kelly, what about your background? This topic is important to me just because as part of my work as a veterinary behaviorist, I see dogs and cats every day that have special needs, as Kristen put it, and a lot of them have some really serious behavioral issues. And in that work, you know, I came to quickly realize that while the pets that I was treating as my patients were very impacted by their behavioral issues. It also had a broader impact on the families that were taking care of them as well. So Kelly, what is a veterinary behavioral specialist? Veterinary behaviorists, first and foremost, were veterinarians. So we've gone through, you know, a four-year veterinary program post-undergraduate college. And then once we graduate from veterinary school, I mean, some some people know right away that they want to be a veterinary behaviorist, and they'll do an internship and then and start a residency program. Others might go out into practice or do other things for a few years. 
before starting a residency program. But in the end, we have extensive training in animal behavior. And so we're trained to be knowledgeable in all aspects of animal behavior. Because we're veterinarians, we're also trained to address the medical um, conditions that might cause or contribute to behavioral issues as well. Do you still treat like giving vaccines and, and see pets on a regular basis? Or are you specifically a behavioral specialist? So I personally am a specifically a behavioral specialist, but some of my colleagues still do work in that, you know, they kind of wear two hats where they'll, they do some primary care, veterinary stuff, and then also um, treat the behavioral issues. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I like to focus mostly on the behavioral stuff. Okay, terrific. Now, Kristen, you completed a certification in veterinary social work, and that's an awesome program. In fact, I'm going to be done in July. So finally, after five years, we had to postpone because of COVID, but we're doing the five-day intensive in July, and I will be done. But I, you finished, so, and you've been working in the field. So could you please tell me a little bit about the program and what you've done with it? Yeah, veterinary social work. Kelly was actually the first person that told me about it, and I was so excited to know that it was a real thing and that I could kind of find a way to use my social work skills in a veterinary setting. So there's four tenets of veterinary social work. Grief and pet loss is one, compassion fatigue and conflict management, animal-assisted interventions, which I think would be pretty commonly thought of, and then the link between human and animal violence. Mm -hmm. So for those of us who are going through the whole course, you complete modules in each of those areas as well as a, um, oh, what do they call it, Alice? And I want to say externship mm-hmm. um, thing. Where, and as part of that, you do research. And that's actually when Kelly and I started working together on the research originally. I was in that phase of my certificate training. And so I did my externship with Kelly and actually sat in on her consults and could kind of help give some perspective from a social work lens and, and what we were seeing with the folks that were involved in in loving these little creatures that have their own stuff going on. And so, yeah, like you were saying, Alison, you do the mm-hmm. modules online, and then there's a face-to-face component for each of those down at University mm-hmm. of Tennessee. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm excited to finally wrap it all up and put all of the knowledge together. I was really interested when I, I read your research. I can't remember when I first read this online. It was sent through a listserv. And that's what made me contact both of you. I thought, this is really interesting. And it's my understanding that this is the first study to investigate the experiences of pet owners living with pets with behavior issues. Is that right? In the veterinary behavior field, like some of our studies or articles would allude to the fact that some of these behavioral issues not only impacted the quality of life of the animal, but also of the human caretakers. But Aside from, I think there was one study where they evaluated, you know, reasons why people were relinquishing their pets to shelters. And mm-hmm. and some of those reports, you know, it was indicated that some of it was like that it was just really difficult to um, manage these behavioral issues. But that was really most of what we could find. Hmm. Um, is, is that, you know, what you found as well, Kristen? I, yeah, yeah, I think I've think when we were doing research, we could find kind of parallels in human medicine or around human illnesses. But yeah, we weren't finding a lot around kind of animal caregivers in the same way. Mm -hmm. What types of behavior problems were reported? When we did our study, we asked people to participate if they felt their pet's behavior was a problem. So we didn't like 
we didn't say, okay, you can only do this study if your dog shows aggression towards unfamiliar people or anything mm-hmm. like that. So we let we left that as an open-ended question. But what most people responded was that their their dog or their cat was showing some sort of fear-related behavior towards unfamiliar people or animals. They might have also been showing, you know, um, aggression towards those people as a component of that fear or aggression towards the owners. And then we had people who their descriptions really were indicative of um, separation, distress or separation anxiety. So quite a few different types of behavior problems were reported. Yes. Okay. Tell me a little bit more about what are some of the consequences that pet owners frequently face by caring for pets who have these issues? in broadest strokes, like it changes their lives, like it really impacts every part of their lives. A lot of the caregiver burdens, just the financial commitment, oftentimes the emotional impact and a lot of the needs of these animals in order for the animal to feel safe means the human has to do a lot of adjusting of their day to day. Yeah. I mean, I think you captured it really well there, Kristen. And I think the other thing that, you know, I see in my day to day, but also that was alluded to um, by our study participants is that the, just the feeling of isolation, like mm-hmm. a lot of people ended up in trying to manage their pet's behavioral issues, you know, maybe that limited the time that they were able to spend outside of the home or it limited who could actually come into the home and visit them. Mm -hmm. Um, So I see that quite a bit, too, in my clinical experience. Do you find that along with the isolation that maybe family members and friends don't really understand the, you know, the extent of what they're having to go through and maybe not show as much support? Yeah. Yeah, I think sometimes, and I'm sure it's coming from the best of places of maybe caring for the person, you know, and seeing the impact that the animal is having on their lives. But I think... The way that gets communicated oftentimes makes the pet owner themselves feel really misunderstood and that they're not getting the support that actually would be helpful to them. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's one of those things. I think part of the reason we did the research and wrote this was a hope that that could help people who don't live this experience to have a little bit more understanding and empathy of what it's really like and how complicated it is for those folks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think the other thing that we see is that Not only can, you know, maybe family members and friends not know how to support, Mm -hmm. but that strangers can be quite judgmental and also not be very supportive, you know, of these people that are trying to manage this very difficult situation. Can you give an example of something that may come up? I think on a day-to-day basis, I, I, I run into clients who tell me that, you know, They'll be walking their dog and, you know, maybe their dog is lunging and barking on leash because, you know, they're feeling threatened by an approaching person. And then, like, other people will start yelling at the person or, you know, I've had plenty of clients that have told me that other people have told them that they're, like, a bad dog owner. Oh, no. So it's it's a really complicated situation for sure. Well, it is complicated. I think, too, like, people not not respecting the boundaries that the pet owner sets, especially if they know their dog is aggressive and saying, you know, I need you to not come pet my dog or have space for my dog. And that I think I heard people a lot would say, but I'm a dog person. Dogs love me and come bowling into, and just the stress that causes for the owner with strangers, much less when you have to do that with your, you know, extended family or like there's family dynamics of telling people how to kind of how to behave or what's needed from them. 
Well, that actually reminds me of a black lab that I adopted for my uh, dad and stepmother many years ago. And she's doing great, by the way. But she went through a real fear stage. She had a traumatic situation happen when she was a puppy. And then also she was placed in an environment that really stressed her out. So she had a lot of fear aggression. So I took her to a fear class with other dogs and an experienced trainer. And so I was trying really hard to do everything that this trainer told me to do. But the people around me in the environment were doing everything that I did not need for them to be doing. And it was like constantly triggering the, yep. the dog. And it right. really made it hard to train her. Yeah, I would say, you know, what Kristen pointed out is something um, that I that I hear clients talk about on a daily basis, which is, you know, they'll be walking their dog and somebody might have their dog off leash or on a really long leash. And, you know, my client will be like, stop, don't come any closer. You know, my dog is having a really hard time. And the person will be like, well, my dog's friendly. And oh, just, my gosh. You know, it's that disconnect of, well, there's there's multiple individuals involved in this situation. And <laughs> the fact that your dog is friendly doesn't isn't really relevant in this situation. Right. Oh, they could be frustrating, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. So what do people do? Say they have, you know, the best intentions, they adopt a dog, they get a puppy, or something happens, and they develop a behavior problem. What are resources, or what's the next step? That's a great question. So I think one of the first steps that I would recommend people take is to take their, their dog or their cat to a veterinarian and get them evaluated because sometimes we can have medical issues that are causing or contributing to these behavioral issues and we need to assess them for that and at least rule that out from a medical perspective, you know, make sure there's nothing, you know, physically going on. And then from that point, you know, it can a lot of, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but some veterinarians can give really good recommendations on who to reach out for next for help. And sometimes that's a really knowledgeable and skilled animal trainer. And Mm -hmm. then sometimes that's, you know, the next step might be going to a veterinary behaviorist or like a certified applied animal behaviorist. I think getting that vet check first is really, really important. So it sounds like it's important for the veterinarians to be educated on the importance of then providing a referral? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, as a veterinary behaviorist, you know, we're constantly working to educate the veterinarians that we come in contact with and veterinary students who are still in school about how to appropriately address behavioral issues because there's a lot of there's um, quite a bit of disconnect out in, uh, in, you know, popular media and what people get exposed to and what they think are the appropriate ways to address behavior. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, like a lot of things that are shown on TV um, or that are written about on the Internet can actually cause a lot more harm than good. Mm-hmm. I actually saw something the other day and I, I responded on social media because I just I couldn't take it. So I don't usually respond, but uh, somebody had, was talking about a puppy that uh, had an aggressive kind of, you know, dominance kind of behavior. And so somebody responded and said, well, just, you know, hit him or, you know, smack him in the mouth or, or take a newspaper. And I'm like, Arr! everything yeah. in my body went, you know, kind of screamed. And I said, I don't know that it's great to treat aggression with aggression. So it might be good to talk to a good trainer on behaviors, you know, in an appropriate way. Yeah, and it 
think the other part of the process, too, when people are seeking help is kind of to Kelly's point, when they can find the right behavior help and really have the issue assessed is almost a little bit of a reckoning of the dog or the animal they thought they were bringing home and the hopes and dreams of what they thought that would be might not be exactly as they had imagined, depending on mm-hmm. what the behavior issue is and what the needs are. Um, so a lot of times it's kind of a second decision point for people about if they're able or, you know, or have the resources or kind of the emotional availability to take that on or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and some loss around what they kind of thought life was going to, a lot of, yeah, folks work with, you know, I thought we think it's a dog and we're going to go out and we're going to sit at outdoor cafes and it's like, but now they can't go anywhere, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing can be really hard for folks. Yeah. It almost sounds like the five stages of grief. Actually, they, mm-hmm. they may go through during that process. And they may even feel a little bit guilty or reluctant to even say anything, mm-hmm. I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, when we're training veterinary students about how to talk about behavior, you know, one of the things that we commonly recommend is to make sure that they ask about it during every visit because. A lot of times people are embarrassed to bring up issues or they might think that they're the only person that's dealing with an issue like that. And I think if we more normalize it and just, you know, start asking of what behavioral issues are you experiencing with your pet, then it helps people to open up a bit more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think that people experience uh, compassion fatigue as a result of giving things up in their lives and maybe also not taking care of their own needs? Oh, yeah, I would say absolutely. What do you think, Kelly? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I think it can be quite challenging. And I think, you know, we it's, it's helpful to acknowledge that, that living and caring for a pet with behavioral issues is hard. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I ran a support group for a period of time in Chicago for people who have pets with behavior problems. And I you know for some people, it's just knowing that there was a group that it existed was enough to feel not alone in it because mm-hmm. I think it can feel... Like Kelly was saying, it's such an isolating experience. And then if you're feeling drained and depleted and kind of feeling like you're the only one going through it, um, it can be really helpful to connect with other people who have pets with behavior problems and just get it. And I face that, too, doing pet loss and bereavement therapy. People come in and they just seem so relieved to finally have somebody who understands to be able to talk to about it. Yeah. Do you think there's a similarity between caring for a pet with a chronic health issue and caring for a pet who has behavioral issues? I think that there's a similarity. And in fact, we're, we're working on a second research project that's focused on caregiver burden. So there have been some caregiver burden studies done looking at pet owners who are caring for pets with chronic illnesses. There's been nothing specifically focused at be, on behavior at this point, but the survey that assesses people for caregiver bur- burden or the inventory, you know, a lot of the questions that are asked in the survey are things that I see a lot of my clients struggling with. So I have a feeling we're going to see a lot of similarities there, but we're still kind of gathering the data and, you know, don't have results yet. Okay. I had a dog and I mentioned her in a previous podcast who had chronic health issues uh, and an injury, and it was something that really took me out of doing a lot of things that I had enjoyed doing personally. And yeah. it was an everyday thing. I went home and I took care of her in the morning. I took her out to different things for rehab. And I noticed, you know, we talk about maybe eight dimensions of wellness. 
And if you think about you being in the middle and all these other dimensions of your life, kind of suffering as a result of being so focused on one thing, even though, mm-hmm. I mean, you're giving your heart and soul to this one cat, dog, whatever, horse, and everything else just kind of gets depleted, including your own reserve. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm experiencing something similar right now because I have a 13 year old dog and he's and he's a large dog. He's about 75 pounds and mm-hmm. he um, he's having a hard time walking now. He's got some neurologic issues. So he needs a lot of assistance getting in and out of the house. And then he's also got some other physical challenges. And so like, despite, you know, my love for him, he's such a great dog. It's also, you know, it takes a lot of extra time and effort Mm -hmm. to just care for him. And so our relationship has changed a little bit because, you know, we have that extra, those extra steps and those extra things that we have to do together. So I wouldn't say like, you know, it hasn't affected my love for him, but definitely, you know, I'm feeling it in other parts of my life, as you alluded to. Yeah, that and I felt anticipatory grief. And so I had to like recognize that within myself, like, oh, and then it would bring me back to just the moment. And I really practiced my own mindfulness skills to focus on what I needed to do right then instead of I'm going to lose my dog, you know, getting into that grief response too early. Mm hmm. I mean, it makes me think of euthanasia decision in both those situations and where that kind of differs in terms of if you're dealing with it, kind of like you were saying, Allison, a chronic health condition, the condition itself kind of starts to tend towards a decline that becomes in some ways clearer and clearer around end-of-life issues. And I think that's what we ran into in the research and with especially the people I've worked with who sought out um, counseling support is when they're dealing with a euthanasia decision for behavior problems or even a rehoming decision. It's a it's complicated because you don't have the um, I don't know how to say it, like kind of like the physical markers of decline as much as you're doing mm-hmm. it from a behavioral perspective. And there's not the same assessment tools and kind of resources for people to process or make that decision. Um, so I know Kelly, that's oftentimes what people are kind of coming to you to talk through as well and. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think an additional complicated factor on top of all of that is that with chronic health conditions, like oftentimes these are happening, you know, at the end of a dog or a cat's life cycle, whereas behavioral issues usually start to arise when the dogs are quite young, like around one and two years of age. It's something that I see a lot of people anticipating like, okay, my dog could live another 12, 14, 15 years. And what is life going to look like? And am I going to be able to deal with this? And then if they're thinking they can't, then they're also anticipating like that goodbye, whether Mm. it be deciding they're not the right home or deciding the behavioral issue is causing such significant quality of life and welfare issues that, you know, euthanasia is the most humane option. So what difficult um, decisions people have to make. Yeah. And it would be hard to know when is enough enough, you know, because I, I would think that as a, as a dog owner, I know that, and mine was not behavior. It was, it was health. So I knew that it was continuously getting worse, but I really depended on the veterinary professionals to help me determine that because I couldn't really do it on my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, that's 
wise, at least the cases I've worked with, and I think when people have a support of a professional, like someone in Kelly's field, you know, kind of help them navigate that decision point of when, like Kelly was saying, the quality of life of the animal and also when, as a human, they have done everything that is possible within the context and the life they're living and sometimes the needs, kind of what they can give, yeah, whether it's possible to make almost like the pain go away. And I think, mm-hmm. yeah, Kelly has some really wonderful ways that she's been able to explain that to clients and kind of give some perspective of that the behavioral problem is also a medical problem, mm-hmm. even though you kind of separate them out sometimes and how we talk about them. Right. That would be a hard conversation, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It is. It is. Because in the end, you know, the clients that I work with, I mean, they really love these animals. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are part of the family and they're a beloved part of the family. And yet they, you know, the animal is suffering and then the human, you know, the human caregivers are suffering as well. So it is challenging. And and I think that that decision point is always hard. Like when is enough enough? And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, for our cases where we're dealing with dogs that are showing aggression towards you know, either their owners or, or people visiting the home or cats that are showing aggression towards, you know, people living in the home. It's like we don't necessarily want to wait until there's been a severe injury because, mm-hmm. you know, we don't want somebody to get hurt. And also if the animal is escalating to that intensity, they're suffering too. But you also don't want to like, yeah, you know, I, I see a lot of people where they don't want to give up on their pets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, what just came to mind is I've heard several people just over the years, talk about, I'm really worried when I introduce my new baby to the dog or the cat and how they're oh, going yeah. to react and then having to have somebody get rid of their pet because of their baby. Has that come yeah, up for right. you too? Yeah, yeah. I don't think, I mean, I think in our clinical work, we've both seen it. I don't, it didn't um, come up in our research that specific, but it was no, a fairly no. small study. Um, but, yeah, that's definitely something that we both experience. Kristen, do you want to share your thoughts there? Yeah, well, and it makes me think of how, I mean, kind of like Kelly was saying about asking about the behavior problem at every vet visit, but also, like, the behavior problem could be really manageable in one context or one phase of life. Mm-hmm. And then when life changes or something shifts that's either by choice or not in your control, then people are kind of reassessing what that means. And I think, yeah. Either, like, moving can be one of those catalysts, like a baby coming into the home for an animal that can't really be around children safely um, can be really difficult. And, yeah, I've worked with some people where, like, when that gets tied together, it's just just heartbreak in every Mm -hmm. direction Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. feel like those choices have to to be made. And, yeah, I would just say, yeah, people, the bond is there and they're strong and there's oftentimes a lot of joy and happiness even when there's a really, really severe behavior problem and so it's a really complicated place yeah when there has to be a decision around and hopefully that's not the majority of people but I think it's a reality a lot of people at least consider when they have a pet behavior problem and I've heard that happens when uh, people get married all of a sudden the dog Uh, or the cat gets very possessive yeah I mean it, it can be that but I think also sometimes it's just you know what one person might tolerate and find manageable in their day-to-day life, you know, their partner might not. Mm. So Mm -hmm. there can be, you know, a disconnect between the two individuals and what each one will 
tolerate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of to Kelly's point, I think when people, both in the, our research and in our clinical work, when people kind of find that sweet spot of being able to match feeling like they can take care of their pet's behavioral needs in a way that is helping the pet flourish as much as they can and can kind of have a life that feels balanced enough to them that like there are folks that kind of find that world to live in at least for a period of time. So yeah, mm-hmm. I don't want to forget that. And I think yeah. some people were like, they're an angel inside the house and that's all we need, you know, but they're a nightmare <laughs> when we go outside. But if we at least have these little like pockets that we can hold on to, um, I think that can help people not feel completely depleted. Well, that's um, a good point. All the time. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think um, echoing on that statement too, I mean, a lot of people can very successfully manage behavioral issues, even those that involve aggression, and still maintain, you know, a social life and, you know, good relationships with others. But but that's not to diminish the challenge of actually just yeah. navigating yeah. those situations. Yeah. So it's and then they probably work really hard to be able to do that. Like they exactly. have to be intentional to do yeah. that. Like, yeah. And it's usually not easy at all in the beginning mm-hmm. and then it gets easier with time. And it sounds like there has to be a level of acceptance on the owner's part at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So I usually like counsel my clients that, you know, they might have a certain set of expectations for what they wished their animal would be like. And then their animal might be quite far away from that when we first meet. And our goal is to try to help them meet somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. Like we'll probably never meet their dream dog that they wished or their dream cat that they wished they got. But we can definitely make some progress. Mm hmm. I remember, well, when I was young, they didn't have any behavior specialists for, for animals, I don't think, as, as far as, you know, I know. But I rescued this little dog at a bus stop uh, at, a, at a hospital. I guess I was going for a doctor's appointment, and there was a bus stop, and this dog, little puppy, was running around. And, of course, I had to grab her up and take her home. I was a teenager. And uh, my parents allowed me to keep her, but uh, I'm sure she had been abused. She screamed quite a bit and would bite people. She didn't bite any of us, but um, she bit the plumber. She bit somebody else. And so we would always contain her, you know. So we it wasn't it didn't go beyond that, but we didn't take her out. We kept her in the house. We kept her in the bathroom whenever the plumber would come. And so we mm-hmm. just kind of managed it like that, but... Yeah. I remember how stressful that was. Right. I was also thinking, too, there might be some supports or resources that we need to be kind of, I don't even want to say leery. I guess that was the first word that came to my mind. But I was thinking about when my uh, dog had a cancer diagnosis or kidney issues, I would go to all these groups online and people would offer their advice. And it got very, very confusing. I think everybody was trying to be helpful, and I think there is a lot of help in, you know, in support, but I also think that we need to be mindful of maybe bringing that information back to the primary veterinarian or the behavior specialist and, and just kind of run that by somebody instead of getting kind of bogged down in all the information that we can get on the Internet. Right. Yeah. I mean, the Internet can be a fantastic source of information, but there's also so much information out there and the quality of it is quite variable. And I think even, you know, there are groups on social media that are focused specifically on various behavioral issues in companion animals. And 
while sometimes those groups can be beneficial, I also think like just off the cuff tips and tricks that are suggested as solutions for behavioral problems, in most cases, be avoided because there's so much that's involved in an individual's behavior, you know, and there's so much about what's going on in the environment and what has that animal previously learned that has taught them that, like, this is the behavior to use in this specific consequence, that it's really hard to just apply, you know, a blanket treatment Mm -hmm. to an individual's behavioral issue. So that's where I think, you know, consulting somebody one-on-one is really important so they can get all of that history information and um, really understand that individual and understand if there's any medical issues and, and that kind of stuff before diving into suggestions. I think I also read, too, in your research study, there, there was something, and please correct me if I am misquoting you, but it said just be careful because uh, training, dog training, is not, uh, what is the word for it? It's, it's not regu- regulated, I guess. Regulated. Right. Yeah, so you have to be careful about who you even take your dog to classes with. Right, yeah. So the and the issue with, you know, dog training not being a regulated or a licensed profession is that means that anybody can call themselves a dog trainer. So you could have no education, no background in how animals learn and how to modify their behavior. And a lot of the popular techniques that have been around for a really long time have actually been shown to be harmful to, like, increase things like fear, anxiety, and aggression. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking specifically about, you know, techniques that really focus on correction, mm-hmm. um, such as using physical or verbal reprimands. You know, those techniques are still out there, and they're still really, really widely used. But the science is really clear at this point that they can be quite harmful, and they just carry such a risk for making the problem worse. It's definitely a, a, you know, consumer beware situation. Yeah, I I remember some of the obedience training that I went to again as a child, and um, Mm -hmm. training has really changed, at least the people that I go and do training with. It's it's a lot more positive, and it's more of a teach, teach your animal what you want them to learn, but also it's make sure that they know it before you give any kind of correction. Well, and a lot of it is also about, you know, managing the environment. So we talk a lot about setting the pet up for success. So, you know, put them in an environment where they're unlikely to fail and they're likely to succeed so that they learn the right behaviors to do. And you don't, you know, if you, if you focus on that and you focus on rewarding the desired behaviors, then often problem behaviors become irrelevant. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. I was just in another podcast, I believe it was Pat Caston, we are talking about puppy training and how a lot of people would come to their class and say, well, I don't know why my dog isn't doing a sit or a down in this class. They can do it at home. But dogs don't really generalize it that way. You just have to teach them in different environments and not expect them to have those skills across the board because you may right. have a very scary situation in a park and that may be a whole different training experience. Exactly. Yeah, and I think, I mean, from just personal experience in terms of having a dog with behavior problems, that like, and maybe that's kind of the reason it's so important to get it assessed more thoroughly is like Buddy, for example, was very trainable. Like he could do a lot of things and like was very good at following 
cues in certain situations, but if he was triggered and the fear was kind of flooding his brain, all that training just went out the window. And I remember being really frustrated as a pet owner for a while of like, well, wait, I know he can do it in some situations. Why in this situation did he completely kind of like flip his lid? And I think that's, yeah, a lot of folks kind of try to navigate, you know, what's a training issue and what's kind of a behavior fear-based issue and then how can training help that issue? But if you just go to a training class, they're not generally going to speak, kind of like Kelly was saying, to the specific situation for that specific animal and what their triggers are and what they need to feel safe. And You know, that kind of reminds me of what happens in, uh, with people and trauma. Isn't it the same mm-hmm. kind of fight or flight or freeze response? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that fight, fight or freeze response is, innate and it's reflexive so you know our our dogs are cats and like we don't choose to be fearful in a given situation it's there's the scary stimulus and here's our emotional response to it so I think I think that's an important piece that owners you know understand that it's not their dog being defiant or being intentionally disobedient when they're not following direction in these challenging situations. Sometimes it's that they can't follow Mm -hmm. direction in that situation because they have bigger concerns. I always give the example of, you know, when I work with clients in my office is that think about a five-year-old who is having a temper tantrum. Are you going to take that five-year-old and put him on the couch and say, you need to listen to me? They don't have the bandwidth to be able to do that. Right. I think it's the same with our animals. Absolutely. Let's take a break during the Animal Academy podcast. We'll be right back. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing the Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From the Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Do you like what you're hearing during this episode of the Animal Academy podcast? If so, consider having your business, organization, or effort connect with me to see how you can sponsor or be featured inside this podcast. Visit my website over at animalacademypodcast.com and let's have a conversation. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The one question every podcaster needs to ask themselves is why am I still editing my own podcast? We all know that editing your own podcast is the worst part of the podcast experience. Get the editing off your plate and reclaim more time to make more content with The Editor Core. Affordable, talented, experienced podcast editors are ready to take your podcast literally to the next level to make it soar. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Welcome back to the Animal Academy podcast. I want to thank my guests, Kristen Buller and Callie Ballantyne. It's a pleasure to be able to talk to you tonight. Thanks so much, Allison. I've enjoyed this conversation, and we have more questions to go. And 
one of the questions that I wanted to ask are some of the resources. Um, Kelly, if you'd like to talk about some of the resources that may be available. I realize that not everybody has access to a veterinary behaviorist. And in fact, there aren't that many of us throughout the country. I think at last count, there was something like 85 and not everybody is in clinical practice anymore. Mm. But there are some fantastic resources. So there are a couple of really great books, Decoding Your Dog, which came out a few years ago, is written by a number of my colleagues in the uh, American College of Veterinary Behaviorists. And then we have a new one, Decoding Your Cat, which is coming out this summer. And so both of those books kind of focus on, you know, what normal dog and cat behavior, as well as how to understand our animals better, how to interact with them better, and then also how to troubleshoot some common behavioral issues. There are also a couple of really fantastic free resources out there. So one of them is the Decoding Your Pet blog, which is on the Psychology Today website. And then there's also a really great website called Companion Animal Psychology, which is hosted by Dr. Todd. And then Dr. Patricia McConnell's website is also really fantastic. She's another certified applied animal behaviorist. Lots of really great stuff out there. So if you are looking for information on the internet, those would be the places to go. And I would say in terms of a resource for the owners themselves, just for their own support, our colleague and dear friend, Jessica Dolce, has a online course people can sign up to take called Dinos, Dogs in Need of Space um, that she's created as a forum that is not focused on the animal's behavior or giving any kind of training advice, but kind of providing the emotional support to folks that are going through that. So that might be another resource people can check out, and I can give you the link for that one too. Oh, that'd be wonderful. Yes, thank you. All of the resources and links will be in the show notes over at our website at animalacademypodcast.com. So please feel free to check those out after you listen to the podcast. So Kristen, when you think about veterinary social work, how do we put that into practice? And I'm thinking more in lines of, as part of a healthcare system, we really emphasize the importance of integrated healthcare. And I'm wondering if you think that's important in your field as well. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think some of the most meaningful work I've been able to do on my end clinically is when people are are working with someone like Kelly or have kind of good professional behavior support around them and their animal and even have had some sessions where we've all met together so that people are able to get the support both kind of emotionally and for me and thinking about kind of the impact on their life but also understanding their pet's needs and behavior issues. And I found that even within just the social work clinical piece of it, like, oh, it's been really nice for me when I got some clients who come to me for specifically support around their pet's behavior problems, and they are seeing their regular therapist for their own kind of other mental health concerns. And it's been really nice when we be able to work together, and they'll come see me for a little bit just to talk about that piece of their life, but then can just continue with the support with their therapist mm-hmm. um, for the other areas. So I think, yeah. I am definitely of the mind the more collaboration and kind of safety net and care there can be around, especially these folks that can be pretty isolated, the better. Absolutely agree. When I've done some work with veterinary hospitals and um, clinics on compassion fatigue, I've often asked them about how they handle the animals. And they said, it's not the animals, it's the people that we're having, uh, that we're struggling with. 
I know that some states are doing this, and I think as the veterinary social work community expands and the educational programs expand, hopefully they'll have therapists that can link up with different veterinary hospitals and clinics to provide that support to the veterinary staff so they can do what they need to do with the animals, and then therapists can step in and help with the other challenges. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think animals, for all of us, like bring up such a visceral, like emotional response. And I mean, I think that's part of what we learn in the vet social work training and how to be aware as clinicians of our own strong emotional response ourselves to, mm-hmm. to stories about animals or stories about other people's animals. And I think especially when there's behavior cases, we have to do a lot of our own self-awareness around that, especially if we don't understand or kind of have our own moral stress about maybe decisions people are making if our job as social workers is to support the human to really understand their perspective and their context Mm -hmm. um, for something that's really hard for all of us when there's pain of any kind for any animal. Yeah, that's a really good point. Are there very many programs? I know that you mentioned some in your research paper, such as University of Tennessee's uh, veterinary social work program that, that we've been in. And also, uh, you mentioned the Institute for Human-Animal Connection at the University of Denver and the Human-Animal Bond at Colorado State University. Are those the main ones across the country? Those are the main ones that I know about. I know um, the Denver program is very, very strong in animal-assisted interventions specifically. They have a post, kind of post-master's course um, that's entirely about creating programming around animal-assisted interventions. And I think... If I'm remembering correctly, I think the Colorado State program might be a little bit, a little bit newer or just got formalized, but they've been doing human-animal bond work for years and years as well as an institution. So I'm hoping that becomes more and more integrated into just regular social work curriculum. You know, I think that was one of the hopes of the last that social work conference is that it's just general social work education can include a human-animal bond component, maybe that will just become part of social work training versus people needing to go get specific additional training because they didn't get it in their kind of general coursework. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm hoping that because of, I, I, I know that so many people are getting pets and adopting them these days that I've seen more and more emphasis on the human animal connection on the internet and social media. And I'm really hoping those programs can expand because people are really you know, realizing the importance of these pets. Yeah, yeah. Kristen and Kelly, thank you so much for being part of this episode of the Animal Academy podcast. I appreciate the work you're both doing in the field and for taking care of the animals as well as special attention to the emotional needs of their human parents. Thanks for being a part of this tonight. Thanks so much for having us, Allison. It was really a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for giving us a chance to talk with you. It's really Good conversation. It was. And I'm sure there's plenty more to come in the future with your next project, right? Your next paper? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are many challenges that we all as pet owners face. And dealing with it all alone, that's a difficult task to face with only your own perspectives and your own emotions. It's rough. But when it's a team, when it benefits from interdisciplinary construction that occurs and is implemented the task of addressing the special needs of animals happens, not only faster, but becomes a learning experience for the animal and the owner and everyone who's involved. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Animal Academy podcast. 
Detailed contact information and links for each of the guests and resources provided inside this episode can be found at my website, animalacademypodcast.com. I'm Allison White, licensed clinical social worker specializing in the human-animal connection. Let's share and learn from the animals in the next episode of the Animal Academy Podcast.